Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that they may know that I am Yahweh. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve Yahweh their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go, serve Yahweh your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to Yahweh. But he said to them, Yahweh be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and then and serve Yahweh, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and Yahweh brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against Yahweh your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with Yahweh your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with Yahweh, and Yahweh turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts and minds this morning. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer to ask him to do what only he can do in, in presenting the word to our hearts. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the, the read word this morning, the fact that we are able to read it, you've revealed it and placed it and documented it in a book that we can read it over and over again. We pray that as we listen to the sermon that we comprehend it even in greater understanding that it, it be used by you and by your spirit in such a way that you bring about a change in and through us for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, 
This morning, uh, the title of this message is The God Who Displays His Dominion. Dominion is another word for rule, his authority over us. A king has dominion over us. In some ways, in our system, a president, the executive branch, has dominion over us. The God who displays his dominion over the proud, a particular group of people we're looking at today. And I want to pose a question, and, and, and as you're processing it, I'd like to give an, a cute little story that'll help you get an image of what I, where I'm going with this. And the question is, have you ever been humiliated for good reason? So you did something, your behavior was such, you received humiliation for it, and you realize, yeah, I had that coming. Have you, I should really ask, when was the last time you had that, that, that happen to you? I mean, we, we all have those times when we go, oh, man, I was being such a knucklehead, and this person did that, and I'm, I'm actually kind of thankful that they did it because I didn't even realize how much of a knucklehead I was being. Well, we, there's a, we, we in our family have an incident. Now, I wasn't there for the incident, and I'm going to try and tell this accurately. My wife is here, and she'll, she'll let me know where I come off course a little bit to, later today. But there's a cute story that might uh, give you a picture of what this looked like. When our oldest son, Benjamin, who will be 35 this year, uh, was a little guy, probably around three, and so his vocabulary was still developing, and, um, but yet he's obviously able to be understood for the most part. He uh, um, was having breakfast with his uncle, and Cindy was in the kitchen preparing and bringing over the warm plates and putting it before them. And the uncle began to tease. This uncle liked to tease as a, as a means of drawing out the interaction with whatever child he was interacting with. Well, Benjamin was tired, and that was not the morning to be, ta- to be teasing Benjamin. And uh, the uncle uh, tried to draw it out verbally. He couldn't get anything, and so he started doing the, I know, I, I, I think of this, I don't like this. I don't know any human being that does like this, the poking in the side where, hey, come on, come on, wake up, you know, that kind of stuff, talk to me. And he starts to do the poking, and as, as Cindy describes it, our son is sitting at the table, on the table, his food is now in front of him, his drink is in front of him, and he says this in kind of an undertone way, kind of a low uh, 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 use of his voice. He just simply says, I'm going to, and then it becomes inaudible, I'm going to blank you. And the uncle didn't know what he said. And so the uncle prods more. What did you say? What did you say? Say it again. And so he, he continues to prod him. And my son says again, I'm going to blank you. And again, it's inaudible. What is he saying? Well, Cindy turns to go back to the kitchen to get something. And when she turns, she hears splash. Well, his little hands had gone around his cup full of cold milk. And what he was actually saying was, I'm going to splash you. (laughs) He was tired of getting poked and prodded and teased. And he, with the left hand, let it go over his shoulder. And as Cindy turned around, she saw the uncle kind of frozen with milk dripping dripping off his forehead and off his face. And it's cold. And And Cindy's embarrassed and says, oh, I'm so sorry. And, and, And he says, no, I know what he said now. (laughs) <laughs> he said, I'm going to splash you. And he said, and I had it coming. He knew it was appropriate. Although, as a parent, you kind of go, oh, you did have it coming, but I wish you wouldn't have done it that way. 
So anyway, it's just a cute story to understand that there are times when it's proper, when it's right for us to be humiliated because we're acting the part of someone that is not glorifying God with their actions. And we all do it from time to time. Well, today we're going to see that God is, is going to ask Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself? But it's an interesting question to ask because we know this is, is, is uh, plague number uh, eight. And we know that in this plague, that starting with plague number six, we start to see God say that he's hardening Pharaoh's heart as well as hard, uh, Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. So you sit there and you, and you ask yourself, at least I did, I, I, as you get to this, how could God ask this question? How long will you refuse to humble yourself? Well, God, you're, you're hardening his heart. How could you ask him this question? He's not going to humble himself because he's a sinful a man who has a trajectory of sin that continues to increase. And we found out two, two uh, plagues ago that you're doing the hardening as well. And there's a trajectory that you want to show your glory through the, the culmination of these ten plagues. So how could you ask that question? And you start to realize, oh, that's a rhetorical question. That's a question that's actually not asking for a response from the person that it's being asked to. Let me explain to you to that how I got there, how the, how the, the uh, scripture gets there. If you, will, if you choose, you could turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 3. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 3, Paul is talking to the church at Corinth. And he's trying to get them to understand their idolatry. They are, they are falling back into worshiping God. Their, their, their faith is turning to a pluralistic faith. In other words, they got Christ, salvation, but they think they can still have other idols in their, in their uh, lives. And God is, uh, excuse me, Paul, uh, I, uh, actually I should probably say God through Paul is letting them know that this is sinful. So listen to this. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 3, it says this. This is, again, Paul talking to the church at Corinth. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. You're going to start to hear terminology and you start to realize, oh, he's talking about what we're going through in Exodus here. Right where we are in Exodus, Paul is dealing with it with the uh, church at Corinth. For that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, speaking of the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. We don't need to get into the theology behind that. It's a little confusing. And all ate the same spiritual food. Hmm, that's interesting. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock, capital R, that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Interesting. I'll just throw this out that we've, we've talked about since the, the angel of God showed up at the burning bush. The person that, of interaction here, the Yahweh that he's interacting with, is Christ himself. And Paul bears that out in this testimony right here. If you were, if you were trying to go, well, that's uh, kind of more of a, of, a, of a kind of a great theophany. We don't know which person of the Trinity. Well, Paul clears that up. It's Christ he's dealing with here. So we, can, we continue on in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. With most of who? He's going to continue on. For they... They are the disobedient children of God, the adults, those who are 20 years and older, that were saved out of Egypt, saved out of the slavery and oppression. Well, what about these people? Let's take a look. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Okay, mind blower. God overthrows Pharaoh. That's what's happening today in Exodus. He overthrows his power, and he, by overthrowing his power, 
he allows for a salvation to take place. It's a physical salvation that's going to be a picture, a foreshadowing of a spiritual salvation later on. But he allows this salvation to take place by overthrowing Pharaoh, and now we've got the overthrowing of the people that he saved. Why? Because they're disobedient people. So we continue on. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these, took, these things took place, and here's the key to the text and why I'm reading it to you, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul just said everything that happened with the plagues is used as an example in this understanding. Of course, it's used as a foreshadowing of what Christ would do through spiritual salvation, but he's saying as it relates to context of our own behavior, our own desire for evil, and most specifically, our own desire to worship some false god, do not become like them. Everything that they went through, because the, the, just as the Egyptians were tempted to believe their false religious system, so were the Israelites, who were 400 years under the oppression. Well, it wasn't 400 years under the oppression, but certainly 400 years under the influence of the Egyptians and their gods. The Israelites had to be weaned off their false gods and know that it is only one true God. And so we understand that God is using this, 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 this interaction with the plagues and with Pharaoh and the Egyptians as a means of an example for us do not fall to this. And so we can understand it this way. God used Pharaoh as a tool of instruction. And I'm going to get a little, bit, a little playful here. And I don't mean any, any lack of reverence for God, but I think it will help the younger crowd in here. You have heard it used before when someone refers to somebody, that guy's such a tool. Now, there are some of you folks that are older, my age, maybe, and don't have, you know, your kids are grown and gone, maybe you have not heard that statement. When someone has called someone else a tool, the idea there is that they are so uh, arrogant and full of themselves. They are nothing more than a tool. It's a, it's a, a term of disrespect. Well, I find it humorous that our society uses that term, and yet it's so appropriate here. Pharaoh is God's tool. Pharaoh is, what, is the tool that God is using to bring about the salvation of his people. He is an oppressor that has been judged, and God is going to use him. His fall, God is going to cause him to be overthrown by his own actions to bring about a lesson for us. So get that understanding behind you as we move forward and we start to study our passage today. As you look at, do me a favor and look at your bulletin, and on your bulletin, you'll see the takeaway. The takeaway is pretty basic. It's pretty straightforward. It's taken right from 1 Peter 5, 5. We're going to end our, our time in 1 Peter, and it is this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you leave today without grasping that, I have failed as a pastor. Know that God opposes the proud, but gives grace, that's his divine power, to overcome pride and sin to the humble. And so we need to understand that. We take that understanding and, and we move into a little more background. We know that each of the plagues has a history behind it. God is, is, has a, a polemic. It's an, an, it's an attack argument. It's actually a physical attack as well through the plagues on each of the false gods of, of Egypt. 
So there's one line that, it, that there's one strand of truth going through here that there's a polemic. And then there's also God is using this judgment against these false gods to decreate or show that I'm the only creator. I can move creation backwards just as I moved it correctly forward in its perfection. So let me read to you. And normally I read a compilation of different ancient Near East writings and then uh, synthesize it down for you, letting you know that none of it's mine, but that it's a, it's a compilation. This week I'm drawing from Philip uh, Riken and Kent Hughes and their commentary on Exodus, Saved for God's Glory. This is their words. I think they did such an excellent job. I didn't want to touch it other than read it. This is a short paragraph. So in speaking of which gods... Is, is Yahweh attacking in this, this religion that they worship these false gods? And, and when I say gods, they're real, they're real fallen beings that want to be portrayed as gods. They are the fallen realm of the angels, and they want to be worshipped. So they are real. They're just not real gods. He says it this way. It was another humiliation for Egypt's gods. The Egyptians worshipped men. That's M-I-N. The patron of the crops, men worshippers held an annual harvest festival, which may have well coincided with the eighth plague. The Egyptians also worshipped, here goes number two, Isis, the god of life who prepared flax for clothing, which is what was destroyed last week by the hail. Nephri, this is god number three, Nephri, excuse me with a P, the god of, of grain was also a third one that was being attacked here. Uh, Anubis, the guardian of the fields. Oh, Anubis, you didn't do so well this week. Um, and then Senahem, Senahem, the divine protector against pests. Well, what we're going to see this week is the pests, the locusts referred to here. He didn't do such a great job either. The Egyptians depended on all these gods to preserve their food supply. An inscription on the Tanis steel, it's a, a piece of archaeology that's been found, which dates from the reign of Tarharka, speaks of a, now listen to this, this is interesting. It speaks of a fine field which the gods protected against the grasshoppers. This predates the Exodus. Can you see how God is attacking? They, they put their faith in these false gods to protect because when, if you had uh, these locusts, a.k.a., I'm going to refer to them the rest of the time as what they really are to us, we know them as grasshoppers. When they come in, they are devouring, munching. They're going to wipe you out. They take it all the way down to the ground and then pull it out. There's nothing left when the, when a lo, when the grasshoppers come. So this is, they talk about, they have an, a, an actual piece of archaeology that we have found, that they, they worship the gods who are able to protect them from the grasshopper. Interesting that God goes, Yahweh goes right after their false gods. Let me, let me finish with this. But not this time. This time the gods failed, and the Egyptians learned not to trust them for their daily bread, which only the God of Israel can provide. All right, that's the, that's the polemic. That's the attack that God is doing. Those are the gods that Yahweh is saying. These are no gods. These are created beings that have fallen and want to, and want to be worshipped. He also, now we're going to see the, the decreation that occurs. This is the judgment that the earth and all that worship him feel uh, when uh, they worship these false gods. So let me read to you from decreation. De the Egyptians were the willing oppressors and captors of Yahweh's people. That's the Israelites. Remember, they're using them for slave labor. Yahweh decreated or he deconstructed the land a second time. It happened last week with the hail comes in, and it wipes out everything in the field. The field represented 
the land or the dry land in Genesis 1. There was the dry land, and then God put plants in it, God put animals in it, and God put mankind in it. And we see that the hail wiped out any and all of those categories that were left out in the field. So we have an initial destruction, but we have a following one, kind of a cleanup. Who's batting cleanup? Who's finishing this off completely? This is the idea. Let's continue on. Yahweh decreated or deconstructed the land a second time as a means of emphasizing the certainty of his judgment upon the wickedness of Egypt and its counterfeit religious system. Yahweh ensured that the land remained void of any vegetation that had been initially removed by the seventh plague, the plague of very heavy hail. Remember, we talked about that the heavy was the kaved that we see in the, uh, we keep seeing that word come up in this text. It's the Hebrew word. We'll talk about it today again. The greatest nation on earth was now brought so low that it was unable to even feed its people. Yahweh had once again made known to the Egyptians and the Israelites that, that he and only he, the creator of all that was created, is the only true God. That's what he does by way of decreating or wiping out and moving creation backwards to where thou the fields or the dry land, based on the, its connection back to Genesis 1, is bare again. It's waiting God to take action. So with that, we're going to take a look at how God has dominion over the, the enemies or, or those that are proud in their own state of being. They want to be their own God or worship other gods. But first we need to look at it in verses 1 and 2. The people of Yahweh and what he's doing there and what he's communicating will know his dominion over their oppressors. So if you're following along in the outline, you'll see it on your outline. The people of Yahweh will know his dominion over their, over their oppressors and, and the, his dominion over those that are oppressing, those Egyptians that are oppressing his people, the Israelites. So let's read Exodus 10, 1 through 2. If you're new to this, I try and go in some detail to, to allow God's word to just come alive off the page. It's amazing that, that what you can see and understand when you understand it through the, the original language. So please don't, don't fall asleep. This is the time to really get your, your, your mind around and an understanding around what God is doing. Then, and by the way, I use the word Yahweh. Anytime you see the word L-O-R-D, that, uh, all in caps, in the, in the Hebrew, that means, that is, uh, the translation is Yahweh. So that you'll hear me say that, and you're not, you're not reading your Bible wrongly, that I'm just referring to the word that you read as Lord, all in caps. So uh, Exodus 10, 1 through 2. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I, and in the Hebrew, he emphasizes I in the way it's constructed, have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Well, every time we've seen the word hardened in, in uh, this uh, context of, of the plagues, if it's Pharaoh doing the hardening of his heart, if Pharaoh's saying, I don't care, fine, I'm not doing what you said, and then he ro God rolls into the next plague, that word in, in that sense is kaved. He hardens or he makes his own hard heart. And then we saw in, in the sixth plague and in the seventh plague, God started using a word called hazak. It's a different word for, his, uh, for hardening. It shows that God is doing it. So when we, we read, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, we expect to see hazak. That's God's part. That's when God is doing the harden. But Moses, through God's inspiration, throws us a, a curve. It isn't hazak. It's kaved. Well, kaved 
is only used to explain Pharaoh's hardening. What is going on? Is this saying, is it possible that this is actually saying that God is causing Pharaoh to sin? Can God cause you or me to sin? And hopefully in your mind, you, you that are, you're squirming, you want to yell out, no, God can't cause us to sin. James talks about it in, in the book of James. That we sin when we are lured along in our own evil desires, and we, we act out of those. God doesn't do those things. This is, this is a God who is completely righteous and unable to be unrighteous. So what's going on here? Well, it's interesting. Hebrew has seven, I'm going to use a heady term, uh, a little geeky term, seven conjugations of verbs. That means a verb can be understood seven different ways. And it, based on what it, the, it, the congregation or the sense it's using, it can mean something different. Well, listen to this. This particular word, uh, verb, I'm not going to give you the, the, the geeky uh, uh, Hebrew on it. However, the way this verb works is the verb functions so that the subject, Yahweh, causes the object, Pharaoh, that's the... To, to participate in the action. So Yahweh is causing Pharaoh to participate in the action. Okay, Nick, that didn't help me very much. What is going on? Can you, can you contextualize it? So let me say it this way. Yahweh is controlling Pharaoh so that he, what he is doing is ultimately under the control of God. And you go, all right, a little bit blip more helpful, but I'm going to need it a little bit further. All right, let me take another step for you. Let me give you a picture. Think of a, a wonderful symphony. Somebody is playing an instrument in that symphony. They are playing. They are, in this case, we'll, we'll put Pharaoh, who is the representative on earth of the false gods. Therefore, he is representing Satan. That's his role. He wears the, the, uh, the head garb of, of governance that has the serpent on top. It's very visual for the Israelites to know that this one acts as a representative of Satan himself. And then you have Moses acting as God's representative on earth. So we see in this symphony, I'm going to use the, the picture of uh, Pharaoh playing an instrument. He's playing a wind instrument. And as he blows his tune, his tune is an evil tune. It is a wicked tune. But God has control over the whole symphony, over all that is going on. And God is able to use even the dark part of it. In fact, we, we heard today in Sunday school uh, Paul Tripp talked about being at one of these uh, uh, symphonies where as he's listening to it, he heard the majesty of it. And then he also heard what was almost haunting as a part of the symphony. And it really helps us understand that a symphony can have both things going on, and it adds to the whole understanding of the symphony. We're drawn into understanding it more so as we listen to the different instruments and, and, and what they are sharing with us and the beauty of what they are, are, are saying or doing, or, or in this case, in the evil. And yet God is the one who is over the orchestra. He is the conductor up front. He is in control of all of the actions so that the action of Pharaoh, though evil, will ultimately be used for God's good of bringing salvation to his people. And we go, okay, God is not the originator of sin. God is not responsible for your sin or my sin. 
God is the one who uses sin, sinlessly, our sin, to bring about the accomplishment of his salvation. We go, okay, now I got a better understand, a understanding of what God is doing in the midst of this. Let me read to you this. Well, let me say this first before I read it. I'm just going to read to you a verse. This is a picture, what we're going through, of, of what God ultimately does through his son. God is using judgment upon Pharaoh to bring salvation to his Israelite people to get them out, to free them of their bondage and oppression. Well, this is a foreshadowing of what God does with his son, not Pharaoh. God's own son takes on the judgment. It's not Jesus's judgment. It's our judgment, the judgment we deserve as sinful people. God uses that judgment that he places on his own son to bring about spiritual salvation. We are reconciled back to God when Jesus did the work of dying on the cross, taking the judgment for us. Listen to this. This was prophesied centuries before this ever took place in history. This is from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. It says this, Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He is looking ahead at his own son, Jesus Christ. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him, Christ, to grief. Oh, yes, he has. He's been scourged. He's been beaten. He's had his, his, his uh, hair plucked out of his beard. He has been placed on a cross. He has, he has died for the salvation of the people that would trust that he was dying for their sin. Listen to this. He has put him, Christ, to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Whose guilt is that? That's yours and mine. This picture of what is happening now is a foreshadowing of what God is going to do, his own son. The wickedness of what, who Pharaoh is and all he did against the people of Israel, of Israel, we understand and go, yeah, God had a right to judge him, and God's judging him, and they're getting to know this God. But we look at Jesus Christ and we go, but he's perfect. He never sinned once. He's the only human being who ever ever walk the face of the earth and never sinned. And hopefully, by us studying that, by us grasping that, we are drawn to understand, oh, our Savior is a beautiful Savior. Let's continue on. This continues in verse 1. Yahweh's going to identify what he wants his people to know. And we look at verse 1 continued. That I may show, and that word there is not actually show as in view. It's like, hey, let me show you my cards. No, it's not that. It's not that kind of show. It's the idea of, I will cause to take place. That I may cause to occur these signs of mine among them. Verse 2, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson. This is looking forward. This is what the Israelites are going to do after they witness what God is doing to Pharaoh. That Looking forward to a time of Israelite prosperity, he says, how I have, and read your ESVs. Look down at your ESVs or whatever Bible you have. Unless you have the NASB, you're all going to read one, one version. And it's going to say, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians. That word, harshly, I would agree with that if it was in one of the other seven conjugations of that verb. But the, the congregation that is used here in the Hebrew is one of the fewest ever versions of this verb or, or the use of this verb. And I agree with 
the, uh, the lexicon. It's called the uh, BDB. It's one of the most well-known lexicons out there. It's a, a, a lexicon is almost like a, a dictionary on steroids because our dictionaries have our whole language to, to, to know about, and so it can only give so many meanings and whatnot. Well, a, uh, a lexicon, a, a biblical or Bible dictionary, has the context of this verse, or excuse me, of this book. So it's more narrow, so it can go into greater detail. And he says this, and this, and the writers of this lexicon say this, to interpret this verse, you should read it not as how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, but rather they say how I have made a toy of Egypt. It's not talking about a harshness of, of judgment against them. It's talking about God's sovereignty and using them. Egypt is nothing more than a toy. Listen to the NASB if you happen to be, have that, that version of the Bible. It says, they interpret it as, how I made a mockery of the Egyptians. Or the New English translation, sa- translation says, how I made fools of the Egyptians. Starting to grasp that, that the, the, his, he wants his people to know, I am sovereign. The, the ones who are your greatest oppressors, the way I can use them, I can use them as a toy. They are no more than a toy to me. You need not fear them. And I would throw this in, Nick's understanding, if I could so, I, I hope this isn't too proud for our arrogant. Uh, 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 my interpretation of this is how I made a tool of the, of the Egyptians going back to our original understanding of what a tool is. Oh, yes, God made a tool of them because he has a purpose for them and their wickedness to allow for salvation. Let us continue on. And what signs have I done, I have done, or arranged among them, that, that you, and he's speaking of Moses and all the Israelites, may know that I am Yahweh. They will know him by how he mocks their enemies. His people will know their power, Ever had that big, you sit there and you've, you've been, you've got that, maybe you're the sibling, you have uh, an older sibling above you and someone does you wrong and you almost think like, wait till my big brother gets a hold of you. We're just going to set things straight. I had, I was child number six out of ten. I had lots of siblings and I'd go, man, I hope they take care of him when some injustice came about. We have God. When the injustice comes about, it is not outside of his power. You, not, you, you should not be thinking this is overwhelming to God or, or maybe it's too petty to God. No, God knows. He sees. This is, this is what God wants us to know about him. And if he's making a mockery of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, he is making a mockery of who they stand for. Pharaoh is the representative of Satan on earth. He is making a mockery of Satan way back here. Now, he's going to make the ultimate mockery when Satan foolishly has Christ crucified on a cross and he thinks he's victor he thinks he's got him the son of God is dead and he lives he rises from the dead what mockery the crucifixion is to Satan himself we listen to this this is from Psalm 2 1 through 6 listen to the, what the psalmist says about this Psalm 2 1 through 6 why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? I want you to think of some contextual. This is you living today. You could be the psalmist and know that the, the nations are raging against Yahweh even today. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves over all, and, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, capital A, that would be Christ Jesus, saying, let us burst the bonds apart and cast away their cords. The enemy thinks that any, law, any lawful 
act that God calls us to do, the law of God, is nothing more than a bond they want to burst free of. It's, it's, it's constraining me. I don't want the law. I want to be able to do whatever I want to do. It continues on. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Yahweh holds them in derision. Derision isn't a word we use very much. Let me give you an understanding of what derision. Yahweh laughs at them and scoffs at them. You think God is too big for what is going on in our world today as we race to this disgusting concepts at every level, as we look to, to flaunt our evil in front of God? You think that God is worried? He laughs and scoffs at those who are in authority over us. Then he, Yahweh, will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on, holy, on Zion, my holy hill. And so we know that God has placed the king over Zion. And that king is Jesus Christ, Zion being the highest mountain in Jerusalem. It is Mount Zion. Well, we continue on. And I, I, these next few points are more brief. The enemies of Yahweh will know his dominion over their destruction. The idea here, and let me pick up in verse 4. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring grasshoppers into your, into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land. It's actually not the word face. It's actually the word I. But the translators are trying to give us a good understanding. This is a, an idiomatic statement, or this is a kind of a metaphor. The eye of the land is, if you could go up on one of our mountains here in Phoenix and look out, the eye of the land is that which the eye can see. That's what it means. So now if you have this understanding about the grasshoppers, and they shall cover the eye of the land so that no one can see the land. Think about this. So many locusts on the land that the land looks like a, an unstable, no longer dry land, which is stable, an unstable, moving, creeping mass of grasshoppers. Ladies with, with hair, have you ever had those in your hair, the, the, the legs that can grip and you can't get them out of your hair? I know that not because I have hair, but because my, my wife has, has let me know, the, ah, it's a terrible feeling. That's the picture. They are everywhere. You can't even see the land. There are so many of them. It's the idea of the incredible destructive power that God brings upon this nation. He even has them in their homes. Not only is the vegetation all eaten, that which comes back, that when, when I say comes back, remember it told us in, in uh, the previous uh, plague, in Plague 7, that the wheat and the emmer, another type of wheat, so two kinds of wheat, are still in the seed in the ground. When that starts to come up, when the trees that had their, their limbs broken off start to uh, send out new shoots, God sends the grasshoppers in to make sure that there is utter wipeout. There is nothing that they can eat as far as an agrarian society farming. They are brought low. Their destruction now is ultimate. God wants his people to know that I am the God that can bring destruction on a, a nation that is an, an oppressing nation. Then we continue. As we look at verses 8 through 11, we see that the enemies of Yahweh will know his dominion over their minds. And as you see this, you may not realize what's happening. I need to go over it a little bit in, in, the, in the Hebrew because there's a neat dialogue going on here. There's a back and forth that we can't see in English because we, don't ha we only have one word uh, for this, and they have two. And so let me show you. There's a paranoia 
And he ever met anybody that was an oppressor, but as they start to lose their control, they develop paranoia. They start to second-guess themselves. They start to question themselves. They start to think that everybody's out to get them because they can't control everybody anymore. And it's a, it's a, you can see them like before you. They're breaking down, but they're breaking down in the mind. And we start to see this with Pharaoh. Listen to this. So in verse 8, so Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, go. He doesn't say, I'm going to use some words here. He doesn't say shalach. He says halach. It's the H instead of the sh. He's, he's saying a different word for go. The shalach is go and be gone. There's no sense of coming back. The halak is with a sense of returning. So Pharaoh is not giving them permission to go and be gone, which is God said to do. He's saying go and then return. So watch this back and forth. I'm going to keep going. Halak is, is temporary. Shalak is, is permanent. So let's continue on. So Moses and Aaron were brought back Excuse me. We're brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, "Go." In other words, the temporary sense. We're, uh, <clears throat> Serve Yahweh your God. But which ones are to go? Moses says, "We will go." Now, interesting. Moses doesn't say shalach. You, I would, I anticipated he was going to say, "Oh no, we're not going short term. We're going long term." But he doesn't. Moses is dealing with who is going. Pharaoh asked him who, and Moses is just repeating his word that he used as temporary. And watch how this drives Pharaoh nuts. Okay, let's watch this. <clears throat> but which ones will go? Moses says, we will go, halak, temporary, with our young and our old. He's ta- talking about who will go. Uh, we will go, short, temporary, with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to Yahweh. He says, we're going, the whole nation's going. It's not just the men that are going. The whole nation's going. Even if it's temporary, we're all going. Even if you think it's temporary, we're all going. So then in verse 10, Pharaoh says, But he, Pharaoh, said to him, Yahweh be with you if I ever let your little ones go. In other words, Yahweh, you could only go if Yahweh himself was in the midst of your presence. What do we see happen after the 10th plague? What do we see in the pillar of smoke and fire, Yahweh's physical presence, or at least a manifestation of his presence. It's amazing how, Yah- how Pharaoh is being used as a tool. The very words he's saying is forecasting what God is going to do here. And he says, uh, <clears throat> but he, Pharaoh, said to them, Yahweh be with you if I ever let your little ones shalach. He's, he's saying, I'm never letting them go. I'll never let them go completely. I will always demand that only a portion go, and they come back each time. Look, you have some. Here goes the mind. He's getting suspicious. You have some evil purpose in mind. No. Go. Again, the halak, the temporary. The men among you, and serve Yahweh, for this is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Here we see the paranoia starting. God, Yahweh, is the God who has dominion even over the mind. How many of us look at our oppressors and are sure that they're getting away with everything and we know not how they are processing and how their sleep escapes them as they process all of their evil, always afraid that somebody more evil than them will come in and take their place. Constant paranoia. 
And so we, we move from uh, Yahweh uh, making sure that they will know the dominion of their minds, or excuse me, that, that he has dominion over their minds, to Yahweh, <clears throat> the enemies of Yahweh will know his dominion over their standing. And I'll just point to verse 16. He says this, Then Pharaoh hastily, that's quickly, called Moses and Aaron and said, to, and said I have sinned against Yahweh, your God, against you. Now, therefore, <clears throat> forgive me, and, and please, only this once, and plead with Yahweh, your God, only to remove this death from, from me. This great uh, would-be God, who in chapter 4, when Moses originally came to him and said, Yahweh has said to free the people, he says, I don't even know Yahweh. I won't even acknowledge that name in my court. He is nobody to me. Who has standing now? Who is pleading for whom? Who is in control? Who is the greater with authority and who is the lesser? He wants, that is, God wants his people to be reminded of this. He's reminding us in so many different ways this truth. We need to get it in our minds. Do not be overwhelmed by what you're seeing in society now. Our God is in control. And finally, the people of Yahweh will know his grace. So we started off with what the people will know. We dealt with the three things that the enemy of Yahweh will know. And we end with what the people will know. And I turn you to 1 Peter 5, 6-7. The people of Yahweh will know his grace if we humble ourselves. And you'll recognize this statement. This is, this is the, we start with the question that God posed. He posed it to, Yah, to Pharaoh as a rhetorical question, and it was, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? And we as Christians never want God to have to ask us that question. And yet, we as Christians need to love those around us that God gives the burden to ask us that question. Can you not see that you're acting in your own pride and you're not humbling yourself? It, could it be that your marriage is in trouble, that your relationship with your children is in trouble, that your work is a, is, is a mess? Is it possible that your pride, you are acting in pride? We need to, to realize this is a painful question. This is a question we don't want to ask, but this is a question we need to ask ourselves. Listen to this, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6. I'm going to cherry pick some of this because I want you to follow along. I don't want to get lost in other areas. Just follow me with me in this. Verse 5, it said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then verse 6, it says, humble yourselves, therefore. In other words, here's the therefore. Because of that... Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. We've just seen the mighty hand of God in Exodus. It's being demonstrated to us by all the plagues, particularly this particular plague with the grasshoppers. Therefore, un, uh, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and then jump to verse six. Or excuse me, verse 10, all the way to verse 10. Because in this world, you and I will suffer because we live in a sin-cursed world with other sinners who have the real enemy, the devil himself, we have all this going. We will know suffering in this world. And he says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, notice how he, co he connected the grace, that the, the humble will receive his grace. He's going to expound on what that grace is right here. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, and we need to be reminded of this daily, what does he do for us in the midst of our suffering? 
in the midst of being oppressed by a world that wants dominion over us, that wants to rule us and drive us into the dirt and make sure that we do not exalt our God? How dare we exalt our God? You must worship my God. And we say no, and thereby we receive the oppression of the world. What does Christ want us to know? Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ? The speaking of the Father, in, of his occurring in Christ, will himself restore you after having suffered, will confirm you, you are God's child, will strengthen you. Oh, I have been beaten by, by the, the pains of, of suffering. He will strengthen you, and he will ultimately establish you. You know that you know that you know that you are going to weather this because of God's grace. This is where we need to be because we have a God who is ever-present with us. Jesus Christ has given us his spirit to dwell in us, to give us the grace of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you. You are an amazing God. We, we stand in awe of your plan. We recognize that we wouldn't get it. We wouldn't connect the dots without your continuing to reveal yourself over the course of history through the prophets, through all the means that you have, the apostles in the New Testament. We thank you. You are a good and gracious God. Remind us of these truths, that God, you oppose the proud. Don't let us be a part of that group, but you give grace to the humble. That is what we seek. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.